everybody. It is really good to be here tonight. Uh, we flew up this afternoon. Kurt came with me. Ex Gauteng recently moved down to Belito, is leading a church there. So thanks, Kurt, for coming along. Awesome to have a travel companion, but it really is good to be here tonight. Uh, I'm married to Jackie. We've been married for 20 years this past May. We've got three children, Levi, who is 18 years old and four inches taller than me. Ethan is 16 years old and catching his brother pretty quick. And then we've got a little girl who's nine years old who is tiny compared to her brothers. And uh, so we're having a lot of fun at City Hill Church in Hillcrest, as Tony mentioned. And I really appreciate the invitation to preach here tonight. Um, Some years back, by way of introduction, when I was courting the lady that was going to be my wife, her family went to her on holiday and asked their daughter's boyfriend, me, did I know of anybody who could house at their house while they were away? Two people sprang to mind, my brothers. One of them's two years younger than me, the other one's five years younger than me. Can't remember how old they were at that time, but uh, one must have been in his late teens, the other one early 20s. They were delighted at the idea of having this whole big house to themselves because I come from a family of five kids. Space was always a problem. So I popped in there to visit them on one of the days that they were house sitting, and I noticed something lying on the floor. It looked like somebody had taken white rice and just spread it out all over the downstairs part of their home. I thought it was rice until I saw one of the rice grains moving and then realized that it was hundreds, if not thousands, of maggots. They didn't seem to mind too much. It wasn't their house. They weren't very good at housekeeping. They hadn't emptied the bin after many days. And But I was a lot more invested in the cleanliness of this home. I can't remember where I was meant to be, but I phoned Jackie. I said, I'm going to run late. We've got a massive cleanup. She came over eventually. <laughs> I don't want to go into the details, but there were maggots everywhere. It took hours of cleaning, me doing the majority of the work, because they were going to go and never be seen in that home again, but I was hoping to be back over and over and over again. <laughs> it mattered a lot more, even though the house didn't belong to me. It mattered a lot more that the house was in pristine condition when my parents-in-law came back. Which brings me to the story that I feel God's put on my heart for tonight. And I really mean for tonight. I haven't, I haven't preached this message anywhere else. I feel like it's a word for us here this evening. It's a parable that Jesus told. And I want to just highlight it's a parable that Jesus told. Because he metaphors himself a lot in this parable. So why don't we dive in? Jesus speaking. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold. That's the newer NIV says that. Most versions say he gave five talents of gold. To another, he gave two bags of gold and to another one bag, each according to his ability Then he went on his journey. Now, I've known the story since I was a little guy in Sunday school, but I think I've often been misled just by the numbers one, two, and five. 
I want to dive in here a little bit to give you an idea of how much wealth has just been spoken about here. One talent of gold was equivalent to what a laborer in that day would have taken 20 years to earn. Half of your life's wages equals one talent of gold. You got given one talent of gold, that is a lot of money. Two talents of gold is an entire working lifetime's worth of money. These are the figures that Jesus is using here. Five talents, five bags of gold, 100 years worth of income. Just handed over to the servant. I thought maybe I could do a, use an illustration. So I've, I bought some gold gift bags. These are going to represent these millions of rands. Thanks, guys, for your help. We're going to line them up here behind me. But just before reading further, I want to kind of get into the story a little bit. Is that the five bags? Great, thank you. Five bags of gold, two bags of gold. And one bag of gold. So what I like to do when I'm reading the Bible is try and pause a little bit and use my imagination to imagine the story because it's so easy just to read fast through it and lose the impact of it. Imagine there's this master of this vast estate, this vast household, and he calls the chef, the butler, and a doorman. It says three servants, right? The chef, the butler, and the doorman. And he, the chef is getting paid a coin per day for his labor, and the master takes a talent full of gold, 20 years worth of his wages. He says, I want you to take care of this until I come back. The next guy, the butler, two bags of gold, 40 years worth of wages. And then the next guy, he's got to have wheelbarrows to help him get the gold out. That's 100 years worth of income. Imagine, we're using our imagination, imagine these guys going home that night with 20 years worth of wages. Could I, I want to use rands if you don't mind just for this. I'm going to call this bag the 10 million rand bag, 20 million rand and 50 million rand. Imagine you're the cook at a big household and you arrive home with 10 million of your master's rands. Your wife says to you, where did you steal that from? Where else would you get this kind of money? I was given it. What do you mean you're given it? Well, you know, our master, he, he just called the three of us and he gave me 10 million bucks. What did you do to deserve it? Nothing that I know. I mean, I cooked a regular supper. And what else happened? Well, the butler, he got 20 million bucks. Why 20? No explanation. And the doorman, he got 50 million bucks. Just Netsoma, just because. Reminds me of the story in 2017 of a student at Walter Sisulu University who made the news. She was owed 1,400 rand of government funding for a food allowance and instead got paid 14 million rand into her bank account. When it landed, she went on a spending spree and managed to get through 810,000 rand of it before her 
bank account was closed. I wonder if these servants had the same temptation. Never had this much money before. Let's just go and spend it. Well, let's read what the story says. Verse 16, the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. I didn't have space in my suitcase for the next lot of bags, so you just have to imagine this multiplication. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more, but the man who received my 10 million rand bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money, didn't spend it, didn't waste it, just hid it. After a long time, the master of these servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. He now brings back more wheelbarrows, 10 bags of gold, 200 years worth of income. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. 40 years becomes 80 years worth of wages, the 40 million now he's bringing back. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, the millions. I'll put you in charge of many things. Wow, what a wealthy master. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who received the one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I know that you are a hard man. Harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have at very least put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I could have received it back with interest. Interest wouldn't have doubled it, would have just got it a bit more, but it would have held steady. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags for whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. Throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You're welcome. That's the message of encouragement tonight that I bring to you. Just by the way, in case you're getting sidetracked by my use of money here or Jesus' use of money, this story is not primarily about money. I believe Jesus is using money in the story just to get our attention, but it actually represents what God has given each one of us. It's about, primarily, the story is about the mindset of faith of the servants. That's where I'm heading. That's where, that's where we're going here. But I'd like to suggest to you, first of all, if you're taking notes, that the central figure in the story is the master himself. The master is the central figure in the story. Jesus is telling the story. He's helping us understand him. He's helping us understand what God is like. It's interesting to me that if you read through the story and ask yourself, what does it teach me about God? A great question to ask about almost every passage, by the way. We see that this is what it teaches us about Jesus, is that he owns it all. 
He entrusted his wealth to them. Even when they were sitting at home with all this wealth in their lounges, it still belonged to the master. All in all, he hands out eight bags of gold. He gets a whole lot more back, and that's a tiny fraction of what he can reward them with at the end. That's his petty cash. He says, well done with the small stuff. I'm going to reward you with many things. The Bible says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He owns it all and he loans it. Everything that we see around us. The second thing we see about the master is that he entrusted as he sees fit. This word entrust means he puts his trust in them. There's a powerful amount of trust shown here. This isn't Jesus just trusting his servants with a couple of coins saying, well, go and do, the, go and do your best, my boy. Three servants in the household, I'm just using Cook, Butler, and Dorman as an example. I've got, I believe that you can take this money and double it, is what he's saying. He doesn't give the same amount to each servant. He sovereignly decides. Many of us get caught in a terrible cycle of comparing ourselves to other servants around us. And there might be some areas in our lives where we have only got the 10 million. And instead of getting out and putting it to work, we sit around comparing ourselves to this person, wondering why did Jesus give them so much? And, well, I'm not even gonna start because I didn't start out like Tony, Susanna, who... Bob, this story tells me about the masters that he's gone away for a long time and is returning. Jesus is talking about himself. I'm going away for a long time, but I'm returning. This story teaches us that Jesus will settle accounts with us all. The master, Jesus is letting us know what the end will be like. The master says, settled accounts with all his servants. Come servant one, servant two, servant three, what did you do with all of the wealth, I, my wealth, I entrusted to you? Quite sobering, isn't it? This story tells me that Jesus expects a return on his investment. It's a very strong statement at the end. Why didn't you go and put my money at least on deposit? I expect a return on my investment into your life, is what he says to that servant. And the story tells me that Christ will reward and judge all of his servants, all of mankind, but this is speaking about his servants in particular, those that serve and follow him. Strong reward. Just by the way, we don't judge Jesus. We don't hold him to account. I know that in sometimes in deep pain, I've thought to myself, one day I hope to ask God, why did you allow this to happen in my life? This story tells me it's gonna be the other way around. God's gonna ask me, what did you do with everything I entrusted to you, Steve? We don't get to question him, but he very certainly will get to question us. This parable, secondly, teaches me about myself. There's three things that stand out to me in this parable, and I've taken the liberty of drawing them into circles. The first one is purpose. This story teaches me about, let me use me, Steve Christ's servant. Put your first name in there. Every single person that follows Christ, 
You can say this about yourself. I have been entrusted with something, many things. They were, out of these three servants, everyone got something. The second thing, the second circle, and that stands out to me, is what I would call the gifting circle. All been given unique abilities. What's really interesting to me, it's, it's a phrase I missed many times when I read this parable. Right at the beginning, it says, the master gave to each according to his ability. Each servant has been gifted with abilities and then gets given grace to go and multiply out. And the third thing that stands out to me from this story is identity. I am his servant. Not just a random servant that happened to be passing the rich guy's house. I am a servant to the wealthiest being in the universe, the most gracious, kind, loving, and entrusting being God himself. Now, Jesus spoke a whole lot about sonship, and then he also spoke about servantship. This is a story on this side. I'm not negating this side. They're both tied together. But I am his servant. And, and what I find that many of us have got these circles out of sync. They warp. They they distorted and they deformed. The most important one out of those is the identity circle, in my opinion. Do you and I know who we truly are in Christ? Or more importantly, whose we are? So many of us carry our well, all of us have got baggage, but so many of us carry our baggage through a lifetime. And the master himself is telling this parable not to discourage me, but to encourage me. And I arrive into the master's kingdom carrying all kinds of stuff. I feel inadequate. I compare myself to others. I feel unworthy. I feel like I'm not good enough. I carry all this stuff. And then the master calls me forward and he says, my boy, my girl, I'm entrusting you not just with cents, but with millions. So I'm not worthy of that. The problem that the third servant had was primarily misjudging the master. He didn't fully understand what the master was like. And this identity circle, I mean, we could speak for hours and hours and hours about that. But when I know whose I am, I then understand that all my giftings come from him. I didn't pick any of them when I was born. There's certain graces, there's certain amazing, beautiful gifts that are established over every single one of our lives. The difficulty we have is that because we grow up in a distorted world, we hear other people's graces get praised in certain contexts, and we think, well, because I'm not like them, um, obviously I don't have any graces or gifts. Maybe I could use my children as an example. Our two boys are pretty good at all ball sports. I'd love to say they inherited that from either me or Jackie, but they didn't. Both of their parents are not good at all ball sports. I can see what needs to be done. I cannot do it. 
at most school award ceremonies, they're getting something related to sports somewhere along the line. And I'm just tears in my eyes. I'm such a proud dad. And I, now, our little girl so far has not displayed great talents with ball sports. But she's in a family where a lot of sport is watched and spoken about. So it would be very easy for her to grow up and think, because in this very thin area of life, I don't have the same kind of grace that my brothers have, I'm not good enough for my dad's praise or love. Imagine then, she went out and with a whole life said, well, I'm not gonna try it anything. How, is, how would I as a parent think about that? I'd be devastated because she has got so much grace in different areas. And the curse of comparison is that it causes us to take the millions that God has invested in our lives, every single one of us here tonight, and we go and bury it in the ground because it didn't look like somebody else's grace, like somebody else's gifting. The gifting circle in your world is worth the millions to your Father in heaven. He knows who you are. He knows what he's given to each of us. And then he says to every one of us, I've got purposes for you in the world. I have figured out amazing things for you to do. Every morning, let's wake up. We're going on an adventure together. And if our identity circle and gifting circle is all out of sync, we'll start to see purpose through weird eyes. If you sit long enough in church, you might think that the, the highest calling any person could have is get up and preach on a Sunday because the preacher is so pumped, both preaching. You can't find that in the Bible. You'll find it very difficult to back that up. There's a, a man in our church, his name is Jacques. And for the last couple of years, he's been my boy's rugby coach. He has got a unique ability to call stuff out of the boys. I can't think of a more difficult job than getting a whole bunch of teenage boys at six in the morning to gym, etc., etc. But there's some grace on Jacques' life that these boys would run through walls for him, even amid losing teeth, etc., etc. This rugby team, it's quite a new school that our boys are at. I think this is only their seventh year of having matrix. It's a developing school, sport is developing. This year, their rugby team said all kinds of firsts. coach who was living in some of the radical center, if you don't mind putting up the next little, the next slide, that little bit where his purpose is gifting and his identity align. And I sat at the rugby awards evening a couple of weeks ago, tears streaming down my face as I heard a man not just celebrating a sport of 30 boys chasing a little oval piece of plastic, but calling out character and what he admired about them. And as he called out of these boys, I just sat there feeling so encouraged because here's a man operating in his gifting. And then he sends me an email saying, so that's in his lane. He sends me an email saying, my brother's a missionary somewhere on the other side of the world. He's coming to Hillcrest to visit. Would, could he meet with you? Now, normally those kinds of emails have got the question like, he'd like to speak to the business people in your church to raise money. So I just preempted it, said, as long as it's not to speak to the business people to raise, you know, I don't know. He says, no, 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 it's just to connect. 
And an amazing thing happens at that lunch as I'm meeting with Johan and Chloe. It was going to be just, I guess, an hour. It ends up being two and a half hours. And the South African couple who live in Armenia have been there for four years and they're just playing in hard ground. And as they're telling their story, I asked them, when are you guys going to plant a church? Because that seems like the natural thing. They look shocked. They said, the only people we've spoken to about that is each other. We haven't dared whisper. We don't even know if we should. I said, well, everything you've said, they were here last week from Armenia. Well, Johan was here. And they're planting a church in Yerevan, Armenia on the 30th of October. If you see there, I think it's very crazy and courageous. But they are partnering with NCMI and planting this church. They've connected amazingly with different guys all over the world. All of them happen to be connected with NCMI somehow. But if you track the step back, it happened because a man, Jacques, was living in his sweet spot where his gifting, purpose, and identity was finding an amazing outlet. This just happens to be one of the side effects of a radically centered life, if I could call those circles that. I feel like the master wants to remind every single one of us tonight, if I could be so bold as to speak in first person that you have purpose, you've got gifting, and you're his servant, and there's nothing that should stand in the way of you at very least doubling what he's put in your hand. I'm not speaking money. At very least, the master expected a doubling because that's what his servants can do. The master, furthermore, is coming back. And one day we will give an account of the life that he blessed us with and how we lived it. And he has graced different people in this building with incredibly different giftings, very diverse, and that's on purpose. Entrepreneurship and generosity, academics, leadership, creativity, prophecy, kindness, love, Ability to connect with others, ability to go and think problems through, etc. Thousands of unique graces and giftings. What are you and I doing with the millions that God has placed in our lives? Notice the tone of joy that the master has when these two servants come and they have doubled the millions that he gave them. It's well done, good and faithful servant. And interestingly, the strongest words are reserved for the servant. The master uses two words, wicked and lazy, which is very challenging. And and essentially what the master is saying is, you misread me. It's not okay to take my millions, my oxygen, my food, take up a space on my planet and do zero with it. That's not okay. The third and final point I'd like to make this evening is that knowing the end of the story helps us in the middle. Why would Jesus tell us a story like this about what reward will look like in the end? Is because he knew that we would live a life on this earth that would sometimes be difficult. This story is ultimately to encourage perseverance. It's in the middle of the story when the servant with the five bags or the servant with the two bags of gold is out there at what he feels is the grind. And he doesn't know what day the master's coming back on. 
And it's not his money, it's the master's money, and he's putting it to work. Imagine with me, if you will, in the story, the master's been gone a long time, and these three now entrusted servants gathered together for a cup of coffee. The cook, the butler, and the doorman. And the cook asks, what have you guys been up to? Man, we've been working. We've been, maybe that guy's only got two more bags of gold, but he's got some ideas and he's got some creativity and he's busy putting it to work. And this guy's doing the same. And the cook kicks back and he's like, you guys make me laugh. Why are you bothering with so much effort? The master's not here. We've got all this money. Why bother? Jesus is telling us the story because he knows that that's some of the thoughts that are going to enter our hearts. And he's reminding us, I'm coming back. Don't stop working here on this planet. My dad was a man who only, well, he became a Christ follower at the age of 28. And at almost everything he had tried before that in his life, he had just been average to poor. When he matriculated, he at first failed, got five E's and an F symbol. He passed matric on a, rewrite, on a remark. In his teenage years, an uncle said to him, Andrew, you're the black sheep of our family. He was the youngest of three brothers. Academically, he was far less able than his older two brothers. They went on to become chartered accountants, amazing men, with different giftings. My dad grew up thinking he had zero giftings. At the age of 28, Christ finds him. He got married. I mean, he, they were really passionate Christ followers all these years. But, but in terms of his day-to-day activity, only when he was age 40 did he start doing a job that suddenly connected his purpose, his gifting, and his, well, his identity. He's always been a servant. was a servant of God. But he started doing marketing and suddenly found the thing that he was passionate about. He loved spending time with people. And he sold short-term insurance, primarily to farmers. And he would travel 5,000 kilometers every single month visiting farmers and selling short-term insurance, which is a tough job. He loved it. Fast forward 27 years and at the age of 67, my father goes to be with the Lord, passes away. We were devastated. He was one of my closest earthly friends. He was an amazing man that had this gift of speaking grace and courage, but so often struggled with his own sense of inadequacy. At his memorial service, I think there were over a thousand people that attended. Not that the measure of your life is by who comes to your memorial service, but something amazing happened. For three hours after that memorial service finished, the family were down here at the front. It took three hours before we can leave. And a steady stream of men and women come up and shake hands with me, many of whom I don't know, but I've heard their names before. They say, hi, my name is so-and-so. I was one of your dad's clients. You have no idea the impact your dad had on my life. And I know that my dad visited them once or twice a year for a couple of hours at a time. He always asked for a glass of milk. Very seldom left the farm without praying for them if they were open to it. He cared, and he cared, and he cared, and he cared. 
He's a big-hearted man. And, and I got to thinking about his life, about the number of years that he wasted on this inadequacy because he'd measured himself by the wrong measuring tool. Through his upbringing, he just had the skew view that if you didn't do well academically, and if you didn't earn lots of money, which he didn't, you weren't making it. But there's a moment when he stands before the master, which is awaiting you and I. And I believe, because of how I observed his life, that the master would have said this to him. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Somehow Jesus is letting us know that all of these things relate to this earth. And that if you and I steward the grace that he's given us, the purpose, the calling, the gifting, the identity, to the best of our ability, working hard to be sure, there stands a moment ahead of us where the master who owns it and who loans it will take it all back and say, come my boy, come my girl, now I wanna show you what true treasure looks like. And we're like, God, wasn't that what I had on earth? That, that felt like treasure. I was blessed. The relationships, the connection, the church community, the, he says that was just the beginning, tip of the iceberg. The interesting thing to me is that the Bible doesn't describe exactly what reward in heaven looks like. It uses metaphors every time. And I believe that's because we would be unable to properly grasp it. When our kids were little, they would build these little sandcastles. And the whole day came to a standstill around the sandcastle and they'd decorate. Then the waves would come, whoosh, and it's gone. And they would cry. But as an adult, I knew that they would grow out, they would see there's much better stuff than sandcastles. I believe that a whole lot of the stuff that we're invested in eternally looks like sandcastles. And we just would never be able to understand the eternal treasure this side of eternity. Now, here's the last bit of good news. Well, there's lots more, but last bit for this one. Is that in the story, Jesus just comments about the master uh, leaving and returning a long time, after a long time. But in reality, the master is with us every single day. This is not just the master waiting one day and I live in fear, I hope I'm making it every day. Every single day, the master is with you and with me and if we listen to him, he will redefine purpose and gifting and identity over the course of a lifetime that at the end of our lives we'll look back and we'll be completely different than when we start. The last few months, as I, I Part of my exercise is just to walk. I go out and walk and often I use that time to pray. And over the past few months, there's been this extraordinary sense that I've had when I start to pray that the Father's just putting his arms around me. I don't know how to describe it. I've literally been walking along the road, seven, eight at night, just tears streaming down my face. Like I can't believe I'm so loved. I can't believe I've got such an amazing life. And it's not because of stuff, because he loves me. And there have been days where I feel like, man, I made some poor decisions today. Just feel the Father say, tomorrow we're gonna get up, we're gonna try again. 
There've been decisions I'm facing that I don't know what to do, and it feels tough. And, I, and my boy, tomorrow we're going to get up and we're going to try again, and we're going to keep moving forward because I've got you, and I've invested millions into you. And together we're going to see this doubled and doubled and doubled and doubled. Could we stand together, please? I wonder if we could have the music team to come back up. When Tony and I chatted before the meeting, we both really had a sense that God wanted to do something in our hearts post the preach tonight. I don't know exactly what that is, so I'm going to go chat to Tony and find out what God wants to do so that he can tell us. But I think it would be a good idea just for the, for the musicians, if you guys could lead us in, just in a song or some music, regardless of what words on the screen, it might be the master calling. <laughs> Every one of us have got a direct connection to the master. It doesn't have to be through somebody else. Let's allow him to speak to us, to encourage us, to challenge us as we sing and as we worship. And we'll see what he's got for us from there in the next few minutes that we've got.